Good evening, everyone, and welcome back to 801 Critical Conversations Beyond Backstage. Uh, tonight, we're going to be enjoying part two of our call to action series. Uh, if we remember, we had a student last week uh, covering her letter, uh, part one from the University of Michigan. And tonight, we have a, an equally special guest joining us um, from the University of Syracuse, or Syracuse University, I should say. Uh, Ralph, you want to give us a little introduction of, of yourself? Sure, thank you. Hi, I'm uh, Ralph Zito. I use he, him pronouns, and I am currently the chair on leave of the Department of Drama at Syracuse University. I started as chair uh, mm -hmm, 11 years ago, July of 2010, and um, for the past spring semester, I stepped aside from the chair to go on special assignment, coordinating our department's response to our call to action. And then I am now currently on a two semester leave, um, uh, which includes a research leave as well as uh, an administrative leave where I'm working on some special projects for the department. And I'll return to the chair in fall of 2022. And um, I came to Syracuse after 18 years on faculty at the Juilliard School. And uh, 11 of those years, I was head of voice and speech training and um, all along have maintained a career as a dialect and voice and speech coach for professional productions. So I think that's it. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Uh, so your, your credentials would kind of tell us that you're kind of meant for a podcast. Let's <laughs> <laughs> uh, hope, I don't know. I get, I get more self, I get very self-conscious. So we'll, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, well, Ralph, on, on behalf of the three of us here, John, Jen, and myself, uh, thank you so very much for taking time out of your very busy schedule to do this and, and talk about, uh, I think what we can all agree on is just a, a very important topic to talk about. And uh, I remind our listeners, we're here talking about these critical conversations, these difficult conversations, because we're looking to normalize these difficult topics and, and mainly to just looking to assist each other. Uh, it's really not about uh, negative callouts or throwing people under the bus. It's, it's just about putting the information out there so we can treat one another as resources um, for whatever the thing may be. In this case, uh, we're referring to these call to action letters. Um, so again, obviously that's why Ralph is here. Uh, Syracuse University was a recipient of a letter. Um, but I think before we dig into that, uh, Ralph, if you could help us just kind of give us a little snapshot, a little bit of context of prior to the letter, let's, let's even go as far back as prior to all this pandemic. Uh, what, what, was, what was the normal then? What, what did kind of like your average day look like? Um. Well, I guess I'd start by saying that it's important for the, in this conversation to acknowledge that here on campus at Syracuse University, just prior to the pandemic, we were also in a situation where university-wide, there were um, protests uh, launched by students of color against the university administration uh, with uh, 
uh, any number, calling out any number of grievances, making any number of demands related to uh, improving the experience of students of color on campus. And that evolved into a very long sit-in. I'm going to apologize to, right now I want to apologize to all of the students who were involved in the sit-in for not remembering my timeline. Um, so I just want to acknowledge that because I take very seriously um, what they were doing. So there was, um, and and there were uh, there were challenges with the university administration, and then there were further challenges to the universities around the university's response to the protests in terms of how the protesters were treated. Uh, there was actually even a story in the New York Times when it was going on. Um, uh, about um, uh, students being denied access to uh, students being surreptitiously um, suspended, for example, although the university said these were not suspensions, they were interim suspensions. Uh, we could, I could go down a whole rabbit hole about the legalese of that, which I have very strong feelings about, um, but the environment was not good. And in retrospect, I, I say this with the benefit of hindsight, and, and please keep me on track here if I'm really responding in a way that's useful to what you're going for here. Um, I think in a lot of ways, that situation with hindsight uh, enforced a certain amount of complacency in the Department of Drama and myself included in terms of how we were responding to any issues of uh, racial inequity in our own department. Uh, and by that, what I mean is my memory, and I use that very advisedly, my memory of the experience during the protest is that my students of color were saying to us that our building and our department was a place where they felt safer and more at home vis-a-vis -vis the larger campus culture. Um, and, um, and so we were by and large attempting to go about the business of teaching drama classes. We have five programs of study, acting, musical theater, stage management, theater design and technology and theater management. Um, and mounting our productions. And to a considerable extent, I think we were mostly concerned within the department about our awareness of um, the fact that we have, and well, we had at the time really an almost exclusively white faculty. It isn't even accurate to say predominantly, it's really almost exclusively white and a very white student body. Um, and we had been doing some work on trying to change that, not enough. Some of it is not entirely in our control in terms of the admissions stuff. Um, but uh, we had been doing some work to address that so that we could do, so we could get ourselves out of what I saw as the kind of chicken and egg problem of we don't have students of color so we can't do productions that tell stories about, by, and for people of color. So that creates an environment that makes us unattractive to students of color. And so it kind of spirals in that way. And I say that not to make excuses, but that was my understanding of what was going on. Um, 
Ralph, can can you sure. give us uh, to kind of for those of us that don't know Syracuse University, sure. uh, can you kind of give us an idea of of scope here that we're talking about? Are you are you strictly undergraduate program or do you also have a graduate? Sure, we are an all undergraduate program. The, mm -hmm. A while back there was a graduate program, but we haven't had one for quite a while. And uh, we're an all undergraduate program. And across those, if this is also a little more just sense of scope and size across those majors, we'll have in a given year, a student body of 250-ish, give or take, over the over the four years. Um, the, the majority of those students are in our two performance majors, um, acting and musical theater. Those are larger programs. We tend to matriculate 23 freshman actors, 23 musical theater students uh, as freshmen. And whereas in stage manage management, we matriculate five, give or take. Uh, theater design between five and 10, and theater management also between five and 10. That fluctuates year to year, but so that gives you a little bit of a sense of that. And we have a full-time faculty of about 20 people, uh, between 20 and 22 people. And then we have an additional part-time faculty that can be up to 30 people who teach anywhere from one to five classes. So and that's- BA, BFA? BFA in everything but theater management. Uh, the theater management program is a BS, uh, but all the others are BFA. Gotcha. And and when it comes to, you, you already kind of covered that, so between your student body and your faculty, uh, to, to use your own words, exclusively right, white, uh, at least at that point. Almost, ex almost exclusively. Almost exclusively. Yeah. <laughs> uh kind of kind of lost my train of thought here uh <laughs> almost exclusively white and and we forgot okay, okay. and we're moving on <laughs> sure <laughs> uh oh oh what i was going to ask is uh faculty wise uh the the average uh faculty member has been there for how long well it's changed a lot over the last four years. We have had um, several retirements and uh, sadly uh, two deaths within the last three years. Uh, so actually um, of our 20, let's see, in the upcoming academic year, we'll have 21 full-time faculty and I would say um, half of them, at least, if not more, have been here for fewer than 10 years. We'll have, um, we'll have three people starting this year, and we had three or four people start last year. So, so we've had a huge changeover in, in the last several years. I would say also um, that, that we have, uh, especially in the most recent round of hires, we've been very mindful having received the call to action about how those hirings proceeded. 
Um, and that goes back to everything from how we advertise, how we write the positions, how we evaluate them, what we say we're looking for in order to increase the number of uh, highly qualified candidates from the global majority who apply and who are then moved through the recruitment process. And we've made um, some significant, I think, significant strides um, in the 19 to 20 academic year, 15% of our faculty were from the global majority. And in the upcoming year, it'll be 24%, 23.8 to be accurate. But uh, so in, in a couple of year period, uh, we've, I, I think we've begun to make some strides uh, mm -hmm. in that regard. We've also made similar strides in um, our part-time faculty uh, in terms of how we hire and look for adjunct positions and our guest artists. Uh, actually, I began when I was still sitting in the chair and the current interim chair is continuing the policy that um, faculty who request guest visitors for their courses, and we have a pretty robust uh, visiting program, um, the majority of the guests have to be from the global majority. So if you have only one guest in the semester, they won't be approved for a stipend unless they're from the global majority. And if you've got two, at least one of them has to be. And from there on in, it has to be majority, global majority guests. Which mm -hmm. Step inter interim steps we're trying to take to uh, increase representation, which we know is an important first step. So right, very, right, right. and that's great. And I definitely want to kind of revisit that. Um, mm -hmm. Going back to the to the before times, if you will. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it sounds like there was kind of already some trouble in the waters, mm -hmm. uh, but before even the pandemic happened, before. Uh, this, this kind of awakening happening. Um, uh, but it seems like at least that version of it, it was more towards the university as a whole, not necessarily exclusively towards the School of Theater. I, well, I think what I'd say is, and this was the, this was the challenging part of my awakening, having received the call to action and is that there was much more, there were many more problems than I was aware of. And I kind of prided myself on thinking that I was aware and I wasn't, and um, I'm doing my best to own that and to make reparate, you know, to, to repair relationships and uh, mitigate future harms. But, um, I think one of the things that one of the things that I think, and based on the conversations that I have had with colleagues at other institutions, based on interviews that I've done, one of the things that I think is a little bit different about what happened at Syracuse in terms of the receipt of the call to action, which came in June of of twenty twenty. Um, is that ours came from early career alumni and recent graduates rather than from currently enrolled students. It later was, it was joined by currently enrolled students and supported by currently enrolled students and then 
We subsequently, in the fall of uh, 2020, had two different new sets of demands from our currently enrolled students, from one set from our Black performance majors and one from our Black non-performance majors. But the initial call came from early career alumni. And, um, you know, there are several things that I think are significant about that. Uh, one of them, of course, is there's a particular kind of, um, well, I guess I want to call out first, there's a particular kind of generosity and bravery of those alumni to come forward to demand changes that will not benefit them personally, right? So they came forward and said, look, here are these things that happened to us some of which we were talking about and they weren't being heard and some of which we weren't being talked about, we weren't talking about because we didn't think they would be heard. And, and to kind of, so, so that's a very brave and very generous act. And that's the first thing I want to acknowledge is their, um, their generosity, their strength. Um, and I think it's a thing every time I'm asked to speak about this and this is the maybe fourth time I advise all my colleagues to make use of their early career alumni in addressing these issues, because I don't think we as schools do that enough. We go after our successful alumni because we want to get some donations from them. But our early career alumni are young enough to remember what it was to be a student. They very likely had so many of the same faculty. They very likely went through many of the same, the same curriculum. Um, but they are freed from the faculty-student power dynamic. And that is that, that enables them to speak in a way that I think we as faculty are only beginning to learn inhibits currently enrolled students. You know, we all think we're, look, I'm 62 years old. I came of age to a certain extent in the 70s. It's like, you know, yeah, talk to me. I'm the cool teacher, you know, whatever, right? If there's a problem, let me know. But we're learning that I'm now a 62-year-old white guy. I can't walk into a room and say, if I say or do something that is problematic for you, let me know. And expect that that's enough for a student at all, and especially for a student from a marginalized population, from a student who feels separate from the institution. Those words are just words from me mm -hmm. until mm -hmm. lots of other things, until there is the kind of systemic change that's being called. So, mm -hmm. so I think that's a... Um, and I guess the flip side, and I don't want to go here because I, I really don't want to censor myself. I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm being, you know, I'm in the discussion, but I don't want to center myself in this issue because that's, I don't live at the center of this, except in my ability to, to, to acknowledge my privilege and use my privilege to take meaningful action. But the, the, the flip side of my acknowledging the generosity of the, the alumni who brought these things to light. And some of them were about me, like some of them reflected back to me things that I had said and done that I thought were helpful, that actually created harm. Um, and so the flip side of that is our having to live with, oh, 
we, we caused harm and that moment is past now and we can't do anything about it. That's a difficult personal reckoning and you have to kind of, you can't, you can't live in that because no matter how bad I feel, that doesn't mean a thing compared to the harm that is caused to marginalized people in predominantly white institutions on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And I'm just beginning to scratch the surface of, I'm not gonna to pretend to know it all, you know, but I'm beginning to know more than I did a, a year and a half ago, certainly. So I, I think I answered your question. I may have taken it somewhere <laughs> else. I don't know, no, this is, this is all great insight. I mean, it's, it's, it is a very interesting detail to know that essentially a group of alums that could have very easily just turned her back on, on their school and, yeah. and, and really not had to say anything. Yeah. Uh, were essentially cared enough about the institution that they came from to say something. Uh, they, they, they brought forth, uh, they, they wanted their educational career to mean something. Yeah. Uh, there's, there was some kind of value, something there for them that motivated them to, to come back and say something. So that, that is an interesting detail. And they wanted, and I think the other thing that they, and I'm, and I'm not intending to speak for them because that's not my place, but I think it's also true that they cared for the students who were still here. Mm -hmm. You know, there is this, there was, and they spoke about this and my current students speak about this as well. There are, you know, affinity groups and networks of students from marginalized populations in predominantly white institutions. They end up taking care of each other in institutions that they do not feel are taking care of them. And so there's a, there is something that evolves out of that. And these alumni said to me, we don't want anybody to go through what we went through. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So their care was for these people uh, as well, you know? Mm -hmm. So I, I just want to lift that up. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Um, so, so we've arrived to the moment in which the, the letter arrived. Mm -hmm. um, uh, as you said, it was last summer. Uh, you were kind enough to share that letter with us, which now has accumulated just shy of 500 signatures. Yeah. Uh, there may be more since, I, I mean, that's the last version I received. So yeah. at least that many, yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. So the version that I'm looking at here is just under uh, 500 signatures, uh, both current and uh, alumni students. Um, it starts off with a series of quotes. Um, uh, you yourself and this, this letter has uh, come up in a couple articles and you've gone through some interviews and uh, it was at backstage.com and American theater and, and some of the quotes that are mentioned in these in the beginning part of the letter were definitely uh, in that. So I'll kind of highlight something here of uh, to give our listeners an idea of stuff that was said. Uh, and I quote, telling someone to get a tan to look blacker, especially when they are not black, should be forbidden. Um, the systemic racism at Syracuse University permeates in the drama department so deeply that even after graduation, I felt it, uh, which, which I think also further speaks to 
those early career alums uh, coming out. Uh, and, and certainly one that has kind of been through a couple articles, probably a, a very shocking one. Um, a white professor said the N-word to a group of white students and no one said a word, no one reported it. Um, other things being said here, uh, and of course, towards the end of it, uh, it makes its list of demands uh, and whatnot. Um, uh, so, some demands worth highlighting. Uh, I only say this for the sake of kind of the series, because we're also trying to highlight in this series the similarities that all these uh, universities across the country have. Uh, you know, you have a group of people that don't know each other. Uh, faculty students that don't know each other, but yet they don't they don't realize until these letters come out of how similar their experiences are, um, and as a result, how similar their demands are. Um, uh, th there was a call uh, a call. So one of these demands uh, says any faculty member who is removed for engage who is removed for engaging in any of the aforementioned actions will be replaced by BIPOC hire. The overall numbers for BIPOC faculty must be 50% of the Department of Drama faculty by 2025. Uh, hiring an accountability and student experience representative, this person must be an outside hire to establish true neutrality and accountability. Um, I'm kind of skimming through this, highlighting the ones that we've seen in, in other letters. Uh, any and all forms of media that per perpetuate racist stereotypes can no longer be used for promotional purposes for the Department of Drama. Uh, and it closes out with a formal apology on behalf of the Department of Drama to its past and current BIPOC students. Certainly uh, something that we definitely see kind of like all letters come to that conclusion with that uh, request of an apology, a demand for an apology. Um, and then in its closing paragraph, it, it's, its final sentence uh, says, we look forward to hearing from you in 72 hours, you being the, the faculty of the Department of Drama here. So quick little highlights of what this letter said. Uh, there's definitely more stuff in there, but I, I kind of highlight those items because they're very similar to other letters that we have read. Um, so you're you're certainly not alone in your problems here. Um, so we're at this moment, Ralph, where the students have submitted this letter. Uh, it is now in in your hands, in the faculty's hands. Um, was this an email? Did you get it via an email just to all yeah. the faculty members all at once? Uh, it came, oh, you know, I, I, it came via email and my memory is actually that it came to me. It came to the faculty through me, but I don't believe it was actually sent to the whole faculty. It came, it was addressed to the faculty, but sent to me. Sent to you. So yeah. uh, that's even more interesting. So now here you are, uh, the sole recipient of this letter with the responsibility on your shoulders to share this letter. Uh, can you give us any insight, any highlights of, of how that initial conversation went? Sure. I, and I, I'll, I'll start by saying that um, we have a web page set up. Um, I can uh, um, 
vpa.syr.edu slash call to action with dashes in between call and two. So that's vpa.syr.edu slash call to action. And that's our updates page, which lists, uh, which uh, has a timeline of our actions and um, lists the demands from the three sets of demands and updates on um, what we're doing in response. Um, and it includes our apology, just, just for the record. Um, and anyone can go there. It's not a protected page. And you, know, it's, and you can also, anyone who's interested in following how we progress can sign up for updates so that whenever that page is updated, you'll get an email saying the page has been updated. Check it out. So I, I have attempted to be as transparent as possible through this whole process. So back to your original question, which is, um, I um, I shared the letter to the faculty, and the, uh, as quickly as I could. I believe within you know minutes or hours. I'll, I could go back and check the record, but I, I certainly. Uh, if it didn't come to everybody all at once, it, uh, I, I sent it out right away and said that I would be uh, working with uh, the dean and with the appropriate communications folks from the university to draft a response as quickly as possible. And I believe my initial response to them, I'm going to check my timeline here. Uh, we got it on the 15th of June, and I actually sent a preliminary response by the 16th, and we held our first, we held our first 90-minute faculty meeting um, on the 17th. And uh, there are, you know, I can, there, there's further updates all the way through that, but I we worked, I worked very diligently from the beginning to try to be as immediately responsive as I could be. I think one of the things that I try to be clear about with the alumni from the beginning is that the demands. You can sort the demands in several different ways by kind of what area they address. And, and, and I think this is true of all the letters, right? There's faculty issues, there's production issues, there's curricular issues. Um, but also there are varying degrees to which the department is completely in control of the response or not. So for example, something like um, uh, uh, the demand about uh, faculty who, uh, they, demanding that faculty who engage in uh, perpetuation, perpetuation of systemic racism or heinous behavior should be fired and replaced by a BIPOC faculty member. Um, once a faculty member is, uh, once concerns are brought forward about a faculty member at that level, the adjudication of that issue is out of the department's hands. There are actually university-wide procedures to address those demands, the attempt which 
I'm not going to comment on those procedures or those procedures in this moment as they exist at Syracuse University, but the intent behind those procedures is to balance the due process on behalf of the faculty member with the appropriate hearing of the complaint and addressing of any legitimate grievances, right? But, but once it gets to that level, it actually goes to an office and even I as department chair, I'm not informed about how an issue is progressing until it's over. It's completely taken out of my hands. And then if a faculty member were to be fired, there is no legal way to say, we will hire a BIPOC person to replace them. I'm not taking a stand on that issue, but in the same way that theoretically you can't be denied a job because of your racial identity, you can't really be guaranteed a job because of your racial identity, right? The department, so we've, I've tried to be clear about where my sphere of authority as chair is, where the faculty's sphere of authority is, where the dean's sphere of authority is, where the university senate's sphere of authority is. I mean, look, I've been in higher education my whole life. I've been a department chair for 12 years. I still don't completely understand university bureaucracy. So why should, and I, I don't mean this demeaningly, why should an 18-year-old freshman or sophomore understand it? But I do feel that it's my job to try to be, be as clear as possible about uh, what I can and can't do. And that where I don't have direct authority and where I am in agree, where we as a faculty are in agreement with the demands, um, we will work to advocate for change. You know, um, uh, the university is in the midst of, or has just finished, I guess last spring, they were developing a strategic action plan, a strategic plan for equity, diversity, inclusion, and accessibility. Um, and I wrote a letter to that committee. Uh, I also wrote it to the newspaper, hoping the newspaper would publish it, but they didn't, um, uh, with suggestions basically saying that the current system for addressing bias incidents is failing our current students. And here are some examples from my life as a department chair where I know this has happened. And here are some suggestions about how it should happen. You know, so I've, again, not to go too far afield, but I don't think that, you know, the demand about hiring a student accountability um, representative, right? I was clear with the alumni, I said, you're talking about a position that would cost the department $75,000 a year at minimum. Um, that's not, so if, if you want me to make that higher, that 70, I have to hire that out of the department budget, that $75,000 has to come from somewhere. So what can I give up? I think there are better ways to do this. And also if it's a department hire, that person's gonna answer to the chair. You really want a university, the reason there are university systems is you want the people adjudicating these issues to be separate from any department politics. The downside of that, of course, is that they don't know department culture. But I tried in my letter to point out some systems that we do have in place where there are centralized offices with localized liaisons who know the department culture but don't report to the department. We have, for example, our um, uh, uh, 
oh, I'm going to get the name wrong because they changed it this year, our Disability Resources Office. So it used to be the Office of Disability Services. They, for example, are a central office, but they have liaisons for each college. We have a fantastic liaison from that office for the College of Visual and Performing Arts who knows what our needs are, knows the federal law, knows the university system, and helps get action in a meaningful way. And it, it's my hope that the university on some level addresses EDI and bias issues in a similar manner. If mm -hmm. I'm plugging my own idea there by acknowledging that. But so, so I guess where I'm going back to your original question, you know, what did I do when I got this letter? Um, I, I talked to the faculty and I said, we have to, you know, we have to begin to address this. We, this has to become our number one priority um, and we have to keep moving. And I continued to schedule meetings with the group of alumni. Um, and and how did how did the faculty take it? Like, what was this letter something that kind of caught them by surprise, or I think there did were coming. Sure, I think there were a range of responses. I think um, you know, I think there were a range of responses, and I think uh, I think some people were surprised. Some people I, I, to. It, it, there may even have been some faculty who had been in conversation with some alumni it, uh, about the letter itself, which is, you know, I, great. I mean, great that, that there were some alumni. Uh, I can't say that for sure, and I'm not going to ask a faculty member about that. But, um, you know, and there were some faculty members who don't think about these issues. There, There's an entire range of things. I think people were... I think it is safe to say, and I said this to the alumni when I met them, certainly at the initial meeting, there was no resistance to the idea of taking action. I think when we get down into the specifics of what actions need to be taken, then maybe some individual resistances start to show up because I, people have a difficult time navigating the distinction between their intentions, their good intentions as an individual, and the way in which their thinking, actions, language, and behavior uphold systemic racism. You know, we, we've hoped, I, it's taken us all a long time to learn, I, you know, I can't be a racist, I'm a nice guy. I can't be a racist, I have black friends. You know, we like the ridiculousness of those statements uh, is something that's been driven home to a lot of us only in the last year and a half. I mean, I was, was pointed out to me that an action that I took to advocate for the an additional performance of a student-generated uh, project of uh, for colored girls, right, with, which, the, you know, we have a number of student-generated projects in addition to our main stage projects, and we have the student-generated, and it was fantastic. It was directed by a faculty member, but produced and put together and uh, by the students and it was gorgeous. And uh, we had a parents weekend and I got a call saying, is there anything that you know you guys wanna do for parents weekend? And I did a reach of and said, do you guys wanna do, do you folks wanna do for colored girls again? My intent was to find another opportunity to share what I thought was good work. Well, you know, lo and behold, what that read as to these women, understandably, and for something that I take responsibility for is, oh, 
I'm, I'm, I'm summarizing an attitude, not actual words that were said to me. Here's the white guy who wants to trot us out in front of the parents to make the department look more diverse than it is. So there was a total mismatch between intent and impact for which I take responsibility and for which I am greatly sorry. Um, and then there was a talk back afterwards that got heated and I responded badly. Uh, um, you know, I'm not, I'm only trying to tell the truth of my learning curve because I can only speak for my own growth, you know. And, and I think any number of faculty members might have had similar kinds of um, responses. Uh, we, I mean, I can flash forward a bit and say that um, we then, I think the, probably the most significant kind of systemic action that we took, or pro, it's really a process action, is we launched in January three task forces, a task force, uh, and a, three task forces and a steering committee. Um, and uh, we have a task force on production, a task force on classroom and department climate, and a class, uh, task force on curriculum. Uh, production, they're, they're probably going to change their names as their missions become a little bit clearer, but working on kind of three big areas. And, and then the chair of each of those task forces combines together to form a steering committee so that the actions that we're taking are coordinated with each other. And, and uh, you know, they spent the spring semester gathering information and bringing forward recommendations at our final, at our end of the year retreat um, or just before that. Um, and we passed about eight or nine motions that move the ball a little bit more down the field in August and we'll refine some of them now. And we're, you know, so we have these task forces that are scheduled to be working through this academic year to take some specific actions on our policies, practices, and procedures, um, opening up how we, big issue, you know, that might be relevant. I'm, you know, I'm thinking about the kind of genesis of all of, of you folks here who are in this conversation with me, which is mostly me yammering on, but, uh, uh, you know, our, um, we're looking, we're doing a lot of looking at how we choose titles for our main stage, what we're going to try to not call our main stage productions anymore, but how we choose what plays we bring forward and how we, and, and, you know, there's a lot going on in university theater that's completely in line with all the stuff that's going on in professional theater along with we see white American theater and, uh, you know, looking at our practices and the way our practices uphold racism and trying to do things differently. We now, for example, um, one of our demands, one of, you know, and this is where I, my hat is off to these alumni and students for their, not only their strength and their courage, but their creativity and their problem solving. Um, you know, one of the demands is that for every play we produce, there needs to be as part of the table work period of rehearsal, a discussion of race in the play and the production and how those happen to create a space whereby actors can bring themselves their, and their identity safely and creatively into the room. Because we've, we've learned, right? You know, talk about 
mismatch between intent and impact. Oh, we'll do this white classic and we'll put some black and brown bodies in it, but we won't necessarily unpack what that means for those people to be there, or we didn't. And now we're going, yeah, no, you can't do this without digging a layer deeper. So we've written in a budget line for what are variously called context consultants or cultural consultants for each of our productions. So we're, you know, we're, we're working on a policy whereby all directors will have a set of guiding questions as part of their conception and pre-production work that address issues of identity in the play and how they we're asking them to specifically talk to us in advance about how they are addressing issues of identity in the play and in their conception of the play. Is, is this perfect? No, but it but it's we're trying to systematize some things that that keep this conversation uh, you know forward and forward thinking and, and hopefully head off some problems before they occur and create the conditions under which people can bring themselves more fully to their work, which is what we're all interested in. Yeah, and that's certainly key to keep the conversation going. Right. You know? um, and, and, and so you've, you've kind of hit upon kind of like the, the third part of, of this letter of, of what happened afterwards. You've kind of informed us throughout this conversation of different actions and different uh, processes that you're trying to institute and whatnot. Um, so it's, it's great. It's great to hear that not only has an attempt been made, but it's not just a singular attempt and it's, it's trying to cover as much ground as possible. Um, I, I wanted to ask how, what, what is your relationship? What is the faculty's relationship with the students now after all this? One could imagine that during the initial uh, delivery of the letter uh, that's kind of like the peak moment of, of a, a tenuous relationship there between faculty and students. Uh, but it seems like there's been a lot of conversations. There's been a lot of meetings between yourself and alumni, and there's been a lot of uh, creative problem solving to how to correct things. So how do you think that relationship ha has improved or, or, or maybe it hasn't? Uh, has, has there been any development there? Sure, I, I think it's improved in that the conversations are happening, and and I'll and I'll offer an analogy here that I've used in conversation with the faculty as well, because we, you know, we were in one way we were kind of fortunate that the letter came over the summer, right? So we weren't actively engaged in the teaching or production end of things, and we had some time to meet together, and and but then of course then then. You know, here we are, and suddenly we're teaching classes, and we're trying to do things, and things went wrong, and we were clumsy, and we, you know, there were forever mismatched between intent and impact. Um, but um, I can't even remember what the generating incident was. But 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 there was at one point where you know we had talked about some stuff, and then something went wrong. There, in, 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 I think it was in select, I think this came up around one issue where we selected a, a, what we call a studio project, thinking that it was going to provide opportunities and it was a problematic text that, where the faculty didn't see the problems in the same way that the students did, which is why I think it's important. I think this is a generational issue as much as it is a, 
a, a racial issue as well. I think, you know, we're just having to learn even our youngest faculty members are saying there it's very clear that this generation of students sees and thinks differently and we need to elicit that as part of our conversation but um what i was going to say is you know we so we had this you know suddenly there was another problem and the students came forward and they were like you know this is a problem we can't do this play and we ended up canceling that production uh the small scale production um and, and in conversations, I mean, I said, well, why is this, you know, oh my God, why is this happening? I thought we, you know, not the quote, but generally the attitude, well, I thought we solved this, you know, I thought we fixed this problem. And I said, you know, I think we have to understand that we are going to go through a period where more problems are going to come to light rather than fewer. There is only through this. There is no around this, over this, or under this. There is only through this reckoning. And I'm reminded, I sat for a number of years on the university's, uh, the Chancellor's Task Force for Sexual and Relationship Violence, um, where we were, you know, as it sounds like a task force charged with addressing these issues on campus. And in one conversation, one year, I said, at the beginning of the year, I said, well, isn't, shouldn't our task be to, to make some, to, to, to set some policies and some, set some changes here and get some measurable goals so that, you know, next year there are fewer reported cases of sexual violence than this year. I mean, isn't it that simple? And actually our Title IX officer um, said, well, maybe we can set some goals, but we have to understand that when we're talking about sexual and relationship violence on campus, the biggest problem, one of the biggest problems is underreporting. So actually, if we make progress, we are going to hear about more cases rather than fewer. And, I, and I'm mindful of making comparisons, right? I'm not trying to say this is the same as that, but what I, it, the way in which it is similar, at least as a process issue, is that the incidence of disenfranchisement and, um, and worse that have been carried out against our students of color, often, you, often and usually I would as I would go, venture to say, usually completely unintentionally and out of ignorance, no less harmful, but uh, nonetheless, they, th those incidents are underreported because the students are feeling like they're disempowered, they feel like it's not going to change anything. So actually, if we make progress, we're going to be having more hot potatoes hand handed to us. And that's, so it's a challenge as a leader in a situation like this to keep the faculty motivated to keep addressing the challenges because it's going to get quote unquote worse before it gets better. And who's it going to get worse for? It's going to get worse for those of us with privilege. I just think it has to because we've been shielded from seeing the impact of our behaviors. And we are, we are being shielded less. And so we have to take action and that is difficult, but we have to keep moving through it because no matter how difficult it is for us, that difficulty is nothing compared to what our 
marginalized students are experiencing. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank you, Ralph. Uh, thank you. We're, we're kind of coming towards the end of, uh, of our episode here. Um, but really want to thank you for your time. And, and I think it's really important to highlight those stories in which you talk about, uh, I'll just put it as, as your, your, your downfalls, your shortcomings in, in that you had with, with those moments of racism. Uh, it's, it's very interesting to hear uh, how you put it, the, the intent versus the impact and the, and the mismatching that's happening there. Um, uh, I'm sure it's probably not a comfortable thing for you to talk about, but I think it's a real good thing for everyone to hear because uh, you, you're, you're certainly not the only one that experiences that. And there, there's many others uh, at many more universities and, and other professional institutions as well that are experiencing that. So uh, I think it does those people a lot of good to hear uh, that someone else has gone through a similar thing and, and hopefully they can learn from it. Um, uh, so I, I certainly wish you, your faculty, uh, the rest of the university, uh, the best of luck in, in overcoming these challenges that have come your way. Um, uh, I feel like I speak for your student body of, of there's good intention there uh, on, on both sides. And, and uh, I believe your both sides are striving for a common goal. It's just figuring out how to get to that common yeah. goal there and, and to that better place. So uh, I wish everyone over there the, the best of luck. And I thank you for sharing your story here. I, I want to echo uh, Herman's appreciation. And, and I also want to expand it to say that I appreciate what you're doing for our industry. Um, I think that you're, you're really taking on a both pragmatic and emotional uh, guide to how to react to this. And, and you know, a, as someone that comes from privilege as well, you know, elevating these young people's voices and, and, and what you were talking about, about the generational shift, I see that too um, at my university and with my students. Uh, so I, I just feel like the the um, mindset that that you're the welcoming like cool guy uh, like that that I, I see that and, and I see that you're you're that to the core um, when when you're getting these difficult conversations and and, and doing your best so thank you Thank you. Thank you. We appreciate that. Yeah, I, Ralph, you know, we received a letter at the University of Florida. And so it's really nice to have you in here authentically talking about your experience and, and giving insight that I can take to heart and, and sort of bolsters the good fight forward at the University of Florida as well. So thank you for sure for sharing with us. An amazing, amazing language and articulation uh, that, that I learned a ton about how, how to talk about some of this um, because the language didn't exist, right? Like from, from my perspective, right? There's, right. No, there's no textbook. 
and they're they're beginning to be, and we're writing them. And they, and you know, and I think we have to acknowledge there was information out there that we weren't seeing. We weren't seeing the need. You know, we, we, we. I think we have to. You know, we have to own what we didn't see, and 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 and. But 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 move forward. I mean, you can't. You know, you also can't. Doesn't do anybody any good to sit here and go, oh man, woulda, shoulda, coulda. You know, for too long. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, I take to heart. I screwed up there. So what matters is my changed behavior in the future. You know, you talk about intent, not to, to beat the dead horse, but intent versus impact is a big thing for me. And, and we try to use that language a lot here, you know, and, and I actually, it was, I was in a conversation in this committee, the sexual and relationship violence um, uh, committee, a task force that I was talking about. And it was actually, a student leader who gave me the language, who was doing a presentation and, and leading, giving ground rules and said, one of our ground rules is that we honor intent while acknowledging impact. And I think that that's a really helpful formula. I think that's a really valuable formulation because I think when you weigh one over the other is when you get into trouble. When you say, oh, my good intent cancels out my negative impact, you're letting yourself off the hook. And when you say <laughs> your negative impact erases your good intent, I don't think you're acting with grace or compassion. So I think the real difficult thing is to try to hold both of those things. And uh, I'm striving to do that as we move forward. Yeah. Ralph, you, you mentioned to me off air that uh, you found yourself in conversations with other colleagues in other universities that they're kind of, they've, they've been calling you to kind of seek advice as to, to share in your experience and kind of brainstorm for the benefit of, of their organizations. So why don't you close out our episode here and, and allow us to give you a bigger platform to kind of share your advice and and what what is a kind of little, a, a highlight of that advice that you shared to others that are kind of going through these, through these moments right now? Wow. Um, well, I'll go back to something that I said earlier in this conversation, which is reach out to your early career alumni. They are a valuable, I don't wanna commodify them, they are a valuable resource for change and transformation because of the unique place they hold, um, freed from the faculty-student power dynamic, but close enough to the lived experience of being a student. And I think you've also, I would also say to people, anyone involved in any of this work, transformational work, you've got to exercise good self-care. You've got to find your affinity groups. You've got to find spaces where you can scream and kick and say, I don't want to do this anymore. You know, you've got, you, but, but, but you've got to find the places to do that, right? Because there are certain conversations where uh, um, you just can't and, and to, to, and this is something I continue, I don't not, I do not present myself as an expert or accomplished at doing this, but I think there's a real challenge for white leaders in these conversations on racial on transformation of, and dismantling of systemic racism. There's a real challenge to try to be a leader and yet decenter yourself in the conversation. 
right? Because our, our white model of leadership puts the leader at the center. It's certainly the model of leadership that I assimilated for myself. So how to share leadership. There are, there are other kinds of leadership. Uh, decentralize it, decenter yourself in it. Look, at, look for your faculty resources. And those of you who are on campuses, look at your university resources. I've been greatly supported by the Center for Learning and Teaching Excellence here. I've been greatly supported by the Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. You know, we've got great folks here in the School of Education who are doing transformational work. And they've been very collegial in sharing their expertise uh, with all of us. So early career alumni, university resources, and decenter yourself in the conversation. Uh, what what excellent advice, Ralph. And for the sake of our listeners, I got to say, uh, I got to let everybody know that this was not planned. This was not scripted. I say that because in your closing advice, especially the early career alumni, that's going to be an excellent segue to part three of this series. Uh, so, so that advice will be brought back up on the next episode. And Ralph knew nothing about it. So thank you for that segue. <laughs> Uh, to everybody else listening out there, uh, I think I can I can kind of assume that I have Ralph's blessing here. He shared the website for the Syracuse update, so we're going to post it on our website as well, 801backstage.com. Uh, we'll post it on our uh, social media pages as well, so everybody can be informed as, as to the Syracuse University's progress. Uh, and, and their timeline. So thank you for that, Ralph. Thank you again for your time. Thank you to our listeners. And John and Jen, thank you for being present here as well and joining us in this critical conversation. And we look forward to uh, part three of our call to action series. Thank you all and good night. Good night.